0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: Not only had I lost my sense of control in life, I had, with my suicide attempt, lost my entire support network. And shortly after that, within three months, I was out of the army. I went from being Sergeant Goldsmith back to Chris, living in his childhood bedroom.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Chris Goldsmith, an Army vet who served in combat in Iraq. In 2007, he received a less than honorable discharge after a suicide attempt brought on by severe PTSD caused him to miss redeployment. After years of appealing his discharge, Chris took his case to Congress and was successful in forcing a change in policy at the Department of Defense. His discharge was upgraded, and that policy shift has unlocked billions of dollars in benefits for other veterans wrongfully denied. In the years since, Chris's efforts have refocused on combating domestic violent extremism, especially where veterans are involved. Chris, welcome to Burn the Boats. Hey, Ken, how are you? Uh, good. Good. Great to have you. Um, we got to set the stage. And and I know it sucks going back to that fateful um, date, Memorial Day weekend. Can you tell us about May 28th, 2007? Sure.
1: So after I returned home from a year-long deployment to Iraq, I came home pretty much worse for wear. I um, hadn't had, you know, an incredibly rough deployment like a lot of folks who saw you know, house to house combat type of stuff did. But my job ended up being things like at the age of 19, photo documentation of mass graves. And that's something that um, takes a lot to to learn how to process. And I, I wasn't given the opportunity or the training or the knowledge on, on how to begin to even do that. So by May 28th, 2007, I had... Been planning on getting out of the military. Um, I had served my almost four-year enlistment, uh, but I had just been stop-loss into a deployment that very poetically would would lead to my second deployment being the same week that my contract was set to expire. So I had uh, been recovering from some surgeries and was given some painkillers for that, and spent a couple of weeks on bed rest, looking at the second deployment that I didn't want to go on for a war that I no longer supported. And uh, to say that I was, you know, incredibly depressed is, is like doesn't even scratch the surface. I was beyond, um, beyond able to justify what I was experiencing. You know, I, I felt like I, I couldn't escape my situation. And the last aspect of control, and I'm, I'm saying this with years of therapy, you know, in, in hindsight, and talking about this with uh, doctors thousands of times, right? And come to realize now that my suicide attempt was the one last expression of self-control that I had. You know, I had been accepted to college. I was planning on going home. I had been planning saving money i'd been buying an apartment's worth of stuff thinking that i was going to go live in an apartment outside of college and you know packing all of that stuff into storage not knowing if i would ever you know come back and open that storage locker again was just infuriating to me so the weekend of memorial day in 2007, just before I was supposed to deploy, I walked out onto a field on Fort Stewart, Georgia, called Soldiers Walk, where they plant a tree for every soldier in the unit who's died in combat. And that's where I chose to try to take my own life. And I took the painkillers that I had from uh, from that recent surgery and a bottle of vodka. And, you know, thankfully, my roommate at the time and, and best friend from Guy I knew from basic training, figured it all out as it was happening, called the police, and luckily they found me. Um, I ended up for about two weeks on a lockdown mental ward uh, at Wynn Army Community Hospital at Fort Stewart. And from that moment that I woke up, everything was different. I, I had been kind of a golden boy in my unit, you know, never got in trouble promoted ahead of my peers, um, had tons of friends and everything. And then all of a sudden I woke up and I was treated like a criminal, you know, total like black sheep. So not only had I lost my sense of, of control in life, I had with my suicide attempt lost my entire support network. And shortly after that, you know, within three months I was out of the army I went from being Sergeant Goldsmith back to Chris living in his childhood bedroom. Um, for my suicide attempts, which they considered to be an act of misconduct. And that only exacerbated the, the PTSD. So, though I did still qualify for mental health or VA healthcare benefits, I no longer qualified for the GI Bill. And coming into uh, the Great Recession, I spent about five years in the dark. And honestly, I can't remember most of my early to mid 20s.
0: I want to hear more about that. But for those who don't understand that time period, can you describe what stop loss was like for those impacted? And I'll just give the shorthand. It's basically an end run around the abolition of the draft, forcing people to serve who have already done their time.
1: Yeah, it's uh, stop loss is a backdoor draft, essentially. Um, And it's During the Bush years, uh, when things weren't going so well in Iraq and Afghanistan, I guess comparative, they've never been going well. Um, But they couldn't get enough people to enlist. And when they did, they couldn't get enough people to reenlist. So those of us who went on active duty orders, if we signed up for a three year contract or a four year contract, and our Exit term of service date, you know, what you think of as the end of your contract, if that landed within 90 days of a deployment, they would hold you in that unit through 90 days on the other side of of the deployment. So when I got those orders, it was I basically understood what was happening as Bush was giving his 2007 State of the Union address when he announced the troop surge into Iraq. And my ETS, my uh, contract date was supposed to expire in May of two thousand and seven and and right away, I knew my unit had had been planning to deploy later in that year, but but just because we were kind of already in the pipeline, they just moved those dates up. and it affected thousands and thousands of of troops across the military during those years. And um, you know if if you are not looking to reenlist you don't reenlist and then the military essentially drafts you into a an extra deployment there's no bigger morale killer uh you essentially go from being an all-volunteer army to uh being conscripted against your will which is you know something that in the end congress ended up giving us like i don't know or, well i didn't qualify because i got kicked out but people got a couple extra 100 bucks per month that they were stop loss but there's there's no amount of money that can make a uh, a deployment that you didn't volunteer for worth it
0: that was your rock bottom that stop loss order is is what drove you to that field on, on Fort Stewart but you mentioned uh, your best friend noticing the signs and taking action and, uh, and calling the cops, uh, who I take it found you.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, I, I came to now, you know, there's, there's conscious like you're awake and you can be speaking and, and interacting with people. And then there's like conscious that you can remember and, and you're really there and it's really you. So there were points when I was, doing things like walking around and fighting with the police as they tried to drag me into an ambulance that I have no memory of. But when I came to, you know, when my memory starts was, um, uh, I guess really being interviewed, doing this like intake thing after I had already been put on the the mental health ward. And, uh, I, you know, the first thing I remember is sitting there trying my best to, you know, be respectful and and answer whatever questions I was I was being asked uh, and then having to excuse myself because I had to go throw up some charcoal that I guess they pumped into me. And, uh, you know, next thing that I, I really remember is is how initially I felt like I was being met with compassion by my unit and the rear detachment commander who is you know filling the role of of a captain but he was a staff sergeant infantryman he was actually one of my squad leaders during my deployment uh was basically like listen we understand like you got screwed and you've been like obviously needing help for a while and trying to get it and, and you know we recognize that uh that you got screwed so we're going to just try and like Get you out of here and, and get you home as soon as possible. And I felt great. I mean, I had been up to that point spent months and months and months trying to get help without letting my unit know because it, you know it's and it's like this all over the military, but particularly in 2007, at a time before PTSD was really part of the American lexicon, uh, let alone you know something we discussed openly in the military. Um, I was afraid if I were diagnosed with something, and if they told my unit, uh, you know, I would have been deemed a, a you know, a, a shitbag or a coward or a, a you know, uh, broken and and treated, you know, accordingly, because uh, I had seen that happen to you know scores of, of people uh, going through similar situations. So. But that very quickly came to an end and turned around. And, and initially, you know, that, that same guy, this rear-to-action commander, the staff sergeant, you know, basically says, all right, well, you know, we heard from downrange, meaning the commander's overseas and, you know, we, we need you to deploy. So um, we just need you to, you know, straighten up and, and we'll pretend this never happened as if my suicide attempt was like a criminal act. And on the other side, I have, you know, the doctors, including, you know, a a colonel uh, in the army, a a psychiatrist who was saying explicitly, you know, if you're still suicidal, we'll just keep you up here indefinitely. Now, I was 21 when this happened. And my idea of of what the military's uh, definition of indefinite was, was that I would you know, literally die on that, on that mental health ward. you know, and I can't say that that's incredibly rational or anything like that, but the things that I had experienced up to that point, the trauma that I experienced with this, you know, sudden shift in in how I was being treated by the military, that's what I believe. You know, I, I believe that if, if I ex- expressed, uh, my true symptoms, my depression, my anxiety, my suicidal ideation, that I would be locked away. Um, and it's a, it's a really frightening thing to be put on a mental health ward, to be stripped of your shoelaces and your belt so you can't attempt to hang yourself. You know, you're not treated by your rank. You know, I was no longer a sergeant, I was, I was a patient. Um, having no access to the internet or phones. It's like going to prison. Except instead of committing a crime, you know, and and having due process rights, you're just, you're locked away. And that experience is absolutely
0: terrifying. You were literally handcuffed to a gurney when you regained consciousness from the attempt. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, and that's, so
1: part of the reason or part of the the way that I was kicked out of the military was I was given two counseling statements uh, weeks after the fact by this rear detachment commander. And one of them was for malingering, which is a medical diagnosis. And uh, infantryman with a high school education is not qualified to give a diagnosis um, of any kind, let alone like that. And the second thing I was counseled for was missing movement. And, you know, it it is true that I missed movement, meaning I didn't deploy at the prescribed time. I didn't get on the plane, that you know, had a seat for me. But, you know, the reason is, is I was handcuffed to a gurney because, you know, I was being kept alive after a suicide attempt. And that suicide attempt came after months and months and months of not just, you know, the me generally trying to get help and, and asking for help. But, you know, at a certain point there, it started to get documented, um, not at my unit, but in my medical records, you know, I had been secretly, uh, seeking counseling and going to, to meetings with, uh, with doctors for months to talk about what I was going through. And despite, you know, that medical history, all it took was those two counseling statements. After having no other negative marks on my entire military career, uh, those two counseling statements were all it took to end my military career with a general discharge.
0: Can you explain the impact of a of a general or a less than honorable discharge?
1: Yeah, so um, so less than honorable discharges are something that are, you know, in the history of our military, a relatively new concept. It's something that really developed during the Vietnam War and has been used, you know, more and more ever since at higher rates, higher numbers uh, since the Vietnam War. And it, it's gotten really bad for the the GWAT generation. Global war on terror. Yeah. So at a certain point, I think it was in 20, 2011, Uh, 10% or so of the Marines who left the Corps in that year did so with a less than honorable discharge. And so there are several different types of little uh, less than honorable discharges. There are administrative, which are done as easy as any other paperwork that happens in the military. That can be a general discharge, which denies someone a lifetime of economic benefits through the GI Bill. Or there's an other than honorable discharge, which historically denies veterans even all VA healthcare benefits. Um, doesn't matter if they have pre-existing diagnoses, uh, combat-related injuries or illnesses. Um, that's it. The VA, you know, would historically not take care of them anymore. And then there's the punitive discharges, which you can only get as a result of a court martial. And there's, you know, at least some aspects of due process there, Uh, whether it's a special court, court martial or general court martial, um, you know, you, you at least have somewhat of a, a formal defense. So in my case, I received a general discharge, um, with a narrative of separation of misconduct, serious offense. So my DD-214, you know, rather than reflecting uh, over three years of honorable service and, you know, sure it showed my promotion dates and stuff like that. um, It very prominently said in all caps, misconduct as my reason for separation. So not only did it make me ineligible for the GI bill, but it also made me ineligible for unemployment benefits. And it made it so that my military history looking like a criminal record was no longer something that that I could use, you know, as as a, a bullet point on my resume when applying for jobs. And again, coming out into the recession, that was... There was not a lot there for me. And it also, you know, because of, of the discrimination uh, more generally, I couldn't join most veteran service organizations. I couldn't, uh, I didn't qualify for any veterans' scholarships or fellowships. So even though it was just a general general discharge and it was given to me administratively without any due process rights whatsoever. It basically stripped me of my veteran status for all intents and purposes. It made recovery so, so much exponentially harder.
0: So can I connect these threads and and see if I'm getting the the story right? You sign up to serve your country. Mm -hmm. You go to Iraq and are tasked by your country, by your army with documenting some of the most gruesome scenes imaginable. Yeah. That scars you as it would scar most people. You come home. You try to deal with it. You try to get help. You're unsuccessful. That spiral culminates or bottoms out in that suicide attempt at Fort Stewart. You wake up handcuffed to a gurney and in short order are drummed out of the army without any of the resources needed to deal with the trauma that you have endured on behalf of the nation, yep. doing what we sent you there to do.
1: Yeah. Well, there, you know, one important thing was is with the general discharge, I still did qualify for VA healthcare and though I realistically wasn't given a warm handoff at all to, to the VA. I didn't even know that I was qualified. For VA healthcare, hell, I didn't even know what VA healthcare was as I was getting out. Once I did get connected with the VA, uh, I was going as as often as weekly. I mean, hell, I was unemployed; I had nothing else to do, so I went to the VA frequently. And it and it took, you know, a half a decade before I even started to stabilize. You know, I suffered from suicidality throughout that entire period. But most veterans who receive less than honorable discharges, there's 505,000 veterans, over half a million veterans in this country today, dating back to the Vietnam War, who've received other than honorable discharges and didn't have even the narrow opportunity that I did, let alone the economic stability uh, parts.
0: Not to mention the perhaps the most important part, which is that community of fellow vets who are were, who were there to have your back. And it's got to feel like that's torn away when you leave under those circumstances.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know not a lot of veterans from this generation walk into a VFW or an American Legion Hall. Um, but, you know, that's kind of not the way that our generation has, or the majority of our generation has, has sought, uh, that community. Um, but that is an option for most people. And it was not an option for me. I, I simply, uh, you know, I was free to walk into the, the VFW hall and, and sit at the bar the way that any civilian was, but I couldn't be a member. Um, not, not for years until I started actually getting into DC and kind of Telling my story and getting things changed.
0: We're going to go there because that's the redemptive part of the story, and, and that's what "Burn the Boats" is about. But, but it's not just the VFW and the and the Legion. I mean, it's the post 911 organizations as well. I, I remember at Team Rubicon, we had a pro forma policy, as did just about everyone, that for our our most elite fellowship, you you had to have an honorable discharge. Until we got an application from an extraordinary soldier with a story very similar to yours and we made the judgment call like holy shit this guy has been wronged and we're his second chance. But that's rare. That's incredibly rare. Your second chance ended up opening the door for thousands of others. Tell us when you decided to fight back and what shape that fight took
1: so there are two different ways that that veterans who receive less than honorable discharges can kind of appeal for VA benefits or or they can appeal directly to the DOD to receive a discharge upgrade and because i had VA healthcare you know wasn't necessary for me to appeal to the VA for anything um, the honorable discharge the fully honorable discharge Part of the GI Bill is in statute, so it's not up to the VA to decide, you know, uh, this guy got screwed and we want to give the, him the, the GI Bill. So my redress was, my avenue for redress was going to the Department of Defense, the Army Discharge Review Board, and appealing for an honorable discharge. And the first time that I did it, I was hooked up with a pro bono legal service through through a friend in the veteran community. And, um, I thought it was a slam dunk. You know, I was sitting down with a new lawyer. I was her first case working for a corporate law firm, her first pro bono case. And, you know, it was a relatively thin packet, but I thought it was pretty solid. You know, I had a uh, mental health diagnoses post Iraq, uh, Before my suicide attempt, I had expressed suicidality before my suicide attempt. I had sought treatment actively after getting out. And so I guess this is about a year, a year and a half after I got out of, of the Army. So coming into 2009 or so. So I appeal for an honorable discharge based on the lack of due process and the consideration of my mental health needs, which I was trying to get addressed, but never got help. Took about two years to get that rejection letter. The application process was basically just, you know, have this lawyer help me fill out a, a packet and send it away to the Army, wait and wait and wait. Two years later, uh, I get the den- denial. And uh, so I appealed again. Had a new lawyer at the same firm, but this guy was a retired lieutenant commander uh, from the Navy who became a lawyer. So he was a little more intimate with, you know, how UCMJ works and, and, uh, the injustices that I faced. And we, you know, that packet increased to like 800 pages or something, uh, with all this medical documentation of, you know, the diagnosis of PTSD, the continuous treatment, the, you know, attempts to recover. And a couple of years later that was denied again um now thankfully by the time that denial came around uh which showed up on i guess it might have been like the 5th anniversary of of my suicide attempt um i was in a better place and i had found out that i was eligible for vocational rehabilitation voc rehab uh, or vrn and i had started uh classes at community college um you know, I still had to take out loans um, because I wasn't able to work while going to school at, at the time. And I was, I was lucky that by chance I met a guy, this, this guy Chuck, who is the lawyer for the college. And he had worked for Senator Carl Levin, uh, who had, at that point in time was the uh, chairman of the Armed Services Committee. And as a senior... Legislative aid, his job was to draft legislation uh, for about 20 years on Capitol Hill. So he knew how these problems were addressed and, and helped me basically to put together a battle plan. And what the latest denial had stood on at that point was that they just completely ignored all of my medical history. And they said, well, you know, just because he got a diagnosis of PTSD at the VA two or three months after getting out of the army doesn't mean that he didn't get PTSD at some point between the day he was kicked out and the day he was diagnosed at the VA, which is like madness. You can't prove a negative. Um, but again, this, this, uh, Discharge upgrade process is not a legal process. It's a board of, of five colonels who can come from any of the branches, uh, you know, whether it's armor or infantry or intelligence. They may or may not have a deployment history. Uh, and they are judging people that they're usually just seeing the paperwork version of and applying their own experiences, their own uh feelings and prejudices uh to more often than not just outright deny every application that came before them so so chuck uh after i told him basically what i've told you he said well you know there ought to be a lot kind of you know in the ultimate dad joke kind of way and he's like well it's a good thing that i used to write laws so let's do this and in this case my very first bill one uh, ended up being having the ugliest and even inaccurate name. The Military Mental Health Review Board Improvement Act made it so that these discharge review boards could not ignore the medical records that were sent in by applicants, and that rather than having just a random doctor, uh, you know, anybody with an MD look at those mental health records, they had to have someone specifically trained in. Mental health uh, illnesses, and you know, part of part of the latest rejection that I had gotten up to that point was because a podiatrist had looked at my records and determined that my diagnosis of PTSD was not legitimate. So, thankfully, after that law, those podiatrists, if they are still, you know, the expert witnesses for these panels, they've at least had to go through some specific training on PTSD.
0: to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to EvergreenPodcast.com/slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
1: Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter Podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.
0: It's terrifying that this is how a system like this works, all the more so because it's it's so opaque. I mean, the, the process probably isn't even clear to those who are the victims of it, right? How much discovery did it take for you to realize how these boards are composed and and how the decisions are made and why it takes two years in the first instance, that must've been a frustrating part as well.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I had up to that point, my, my first application, um, I had a high school education and nothing more, you know, I had no background in research. High school doesn't teach you how to perform research, you know, uh, I had no idea how to um, how to put together a paper, how to you know even write an op-ed, let alone present original research and you know find out what legitimate documentation is and what it looks like and how to present it. So, might as well have been me uh, against the world. You know, I had no idea what I was in for when I was applying to these review boards, you know, I didn't understand any of the legal ease, any of the legal phrases that, that are involved that, you know, I ultimately, you know, understood that this was a bunch of officers who were typically judging lower enlisted service members and just giving them, you know, blanket notes. Uh, maybe I wasn't too far off, you know, my only understanding of, of this whole process was that it's a bunch of officers who hate enlisted service members. And that's all I understood about the, uh, the entire process. And I think that that's, you know, and judging by my experience, interacting with other people in my situation, that, that seems to be all that most people know about the process. You know, they don't understand that you need a lawyer to walk you through this. It's not something, though it is designed to be something that the applicant themselves can, can appeal for. I mean, the fact just is that unless you have a lawyer who's there to, to dot all your I's and cross all your T's, any application that you send in is just gonna be denied as poorly prepared.
0: So you endure this Kafka-esque ordeal but you not only endure it you you affect change you win um, do you have any any estimation of the numbers of, of people that your advocacy have impacted uh, has impacted by forcing the consideration of of medical history
1: i i don't know um, and it's difficult to know because the discharge review boards across all of the branches are failing to comply with the law and with regulations all the time. They're supposed to, and they have been supposed to for, at this point, decades, uh, take all of the records and post them online.
0: The potential, though, is there for billions in unlocked uh, benefits uh, if the labyrinth can be navigated, right? Correct. Correct.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, that was my first law. And and for a while, I averaged about a law year on the topic of bad paper. The latest and, and most important was a bill introduced by uh, O'Rourke when he was a congressman and Senator Phil Murphy, the Honor Our Commitment Act. And what that has essentially done is made it so the VA is open to veterans with other non-honorable discharges, meaning that while it's always been the law that veterans with OTH discharges can go to the VA and appeal for benefits, right now because of this latest law, veterans with other non-honorable discharges, rather than having to sit around and wait years and years and years for the VA's own opaque process of reviewing characterizations of discharge, they're eligible to get diagnosed. And if the VA diagnoses someone with something like service-connected PTSD or traumatic brain injury, they're granted access to the required mental health care to get that taken care of. And in realistic terms, this could open up a full suite of healthcare because if you have PTSD and diabetes, you know, it does you no good for the VA just to treat PTSD, and the VA knows that. So now, technically, we could say we opened up an avenue to healthcare for half a million vets in this country. But realistically, without the Trump administration, uh, which you know oversaw the the law being enacted, uh, or the Biden administration now, without them doing like a massive, massive, massive outreach campaign to these vets who are usually not part of the veteran community or not members of veteran service organizations, unless they reach these people, the help is available, but not getting there.
0: So your, your advocacy has expanded into a number of other areas. And I want you to bring us up to the present on your, your work around domestic violent extremism. Um, Sure. And I, I'm, I guess interested in the connective tissue there between your your experience advocating for the uh, the restoration of benefits and your connections to that violent extremist world. You you were on a pretty dangerous glide path at one point. You're you're speaking from experience here, right?
1: Yeah. So my introduction to extremism within the military and veterans community came through my introduction to disinformation. So after a few years of being a veterans advocate, I was eventually hired by Vietnam Veterans America, major congressionally chartered veteran service organization. And, you know, the average member, the average employee at the time was in their early to mid-70s. And being the millennial, uh, I was helping the communication staff with their social media. And in doing that, I came across a fake version of our organization um, that was actually much more successful online than, than we were. You know, this is an organization that's older than I am. And, you know, it's been kind of... You know, it's had a Facebook presence up to that point for like 10 years. And this fake version of the organization, which was using the name and using our logo and pictures of the president of the organization on their Facebook page, had like over a quarter of a million followers when I found it. And one of the things that made their growth so fast was that they were using a real veterans organization's image presence personality to push things like racist political commentary and they were producing original pieces of propaganda uh, like a real news clip about a veterans monument being vandalized. They would racialize it and take that 58 second clip and turn it into a four-hour thing on repeat taking advantage of Facebook's algorithms so that they get hundreds of thousands of views and stirring people up into fighting about, you know, the value of black veterans. You know, they were sending out messages that were directly contradictory to not just VVA, but all veteran service organizations. You know, we in veteran service organizations have served alongside undocumented immigrants. You know, one of my best buddies in my unit was undocumented uh, unfortunately left the army still undocumented after years of service two deployments, the army, you know, uh, and his, his chain of command never saw it fit to help him become a citizen. So, you know, we wouldn't push a message like veterans, not illegals or veterans before refugees. So, That discovery turned into a two-year investigation, which turned into a 200-page report that I prepared for Congress and the general public and the intelligence agencies to help them understand the ways that service members and veterans are being targeted by foreign entities online, not just for radicalization and and to push extremists and racist messaging, but to engage in romance scams and to... um, fundraise to promote political candidates, you know, and, and have people sending their, what they think are political donations to people in Macedonia. So my, uh, my instruction when preparing that report was to focus on foreign entities. And unfortunately I got laid off by VVA due to COVID and uh, that allowed me to kind of just, you know, chase my interests and you know, I started to realize over time that the bigger threat is not just this foreign-born disinformation campaign, but the effect that it was having on Americans and the danger that it was stoking. And a friend of mine who I served with in the army came to tell me about a, a domestic extremist group that I had never heard of before and basically gave me a, a quick instruction on the fact that there is an active, explicitly self-described fascist movement in this country. And since discovering these people who literally think that like my wife should be killed, if not you know, uh, sent out of the country. And same thing for most of my friends and family. These people are literal neo-Nazis. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of people hear things like that and they think it's hyperbolic. I'm not talking about Trump supporters and calling them Nazis. You know, I'm not talking about conservatives or even hardline uh, people who consider themselves, you know, extreme right wing. I'm talking about people who actually like read fascist propaganda, who actually idolize Hitler and want to do everything that they can to see democracy as it exists in the United States come to an end and basically build a white ethno state.
0: Why should we take these groups seriously if they are relegated – to the fringes if they conduct themselves clownishly? Is it like any other extreme fringe group that makes a lot of noise, but there's, you know, there's not much there? Or, or has, something, has something changed?
1: Well, these extreme fringe groups, they operate in, in ways that, uh, that the average person, I think, might not expect and they use terms like propaganda to describe the media that they produce. You know, they are very deliberate in their attempts to radicalize other Americans to push mainstream conversations into fringe territory. And frankly, we've seen that you know, one of the most infamous things was uh, their rally in Charlottesville that resulted in the death of Heather Heyer. The person who killed Heather Heyer, who ran their car into a crowd of peaceful protesters unprovoked, was a member of Vanguard America. Uh, Vanguard America no longer exists in the form that it once did, but was a massive organization with members, predominantly young Americans from all around the country who called themselves fascists. And they managed to convince one of their members to do a a vehicular attack like that. But it's not the only example. Uh, In Massachusetts, just a few weeks ago, this happened again uh, with an extremist targeting Black people. We saw January 6th, with these extremist organizations that most people had never heard of uh, before this year the the three percenters the oath keepers the proud boys they attacked the citadel of democracy they you know during broad daylight and mostly without concealing their identities attacked police officers in many cases they videotape themselves doing it because they have been so radicalized, that, that what they thought, uh, what they were doing, they thought was right. They didn't think that they were committing a crime when they were trying to kill cops. And that, you know, what we saw on January 6th was not the the crescendo, it was not the end, it was not the, you know, fascism breathing its last breath in the United States. It was just the beginning.
0: And you've made this your your new mission. Can you tell us about your work now in exposing, and if you're able to share it, taking down one of these organizations.
1: Sure. So what I do is I both monitor fringe social media platforms and uh, message boards, and I apply for and, and join some of these extremist organizations so that I can document what they're up to and uh, and expose it to. To the world. So, one of the organizations that I joined last year um, as, as part of this goal of taking down a fascist organization was called Patriot Front. It is the rebranded Vanguard America. So, the newer version of the organization whose member killed Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. So, these are people who, despite the fact that they're, you know, one of their members, one of their affiliates, actually killed someone, committed a terrorist attack, they decided, well, we'll just rebrand, put a little more red, white, and blue on it and call it Patriot Front and keep doing what we're doing. So this is an organization that the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League have deemed as the most active hate group in America. And sadly, most Americans... Aren't aware of it. You know, everybody's heard of the KKK, which you know hardly kind of sort of exists a little bit today, but they're irrelevant. You know, groups like the Patriot Front are almost entirely Generation Z. You know, they are are young boys and men who are looking towards the goal of seeing American democracy replaced with fascism and the creation of a white ethnostate. And while that may seem totally crazy and not realistic, and to a certain extent, it absolutely is. It's only unrealistic and it's only crazy if we stop them from trying to do what they're doing. And, you know, with every thing that they do, they're taking advantage of the fact that, that hardly anyone has ever heard of them. Some of your listeners might be familiar with the events in uh, the 4th of July in in Philadelphia, where they may have seen headlines about fascists getting chased out of town by half a dozen pissed off Philly Philly residents. And, And that is what happened. But they got hundreds of members to commit to secretly traveling from across the country to meet in Philadelphia, to rent a bunch of moving trucks, to pack all in there and then basically do a flash mob style march through the city of philadelphia and engage in organized violence you know these people are doing these acts of propaganda expecting people to reject uh their racist messaging and you know luring people into what's what amounts to their like marching formation so that they can try to beat the hell out of them. They film it from just their desired angles. And then they produce propaganda for Telegram and for Gab and for other fringe social media networks. And they use that to make their goal of um, of presenting a, a white gang uh, as something that's that's alluring to basically lonely losers on the internet. Uh, who want to join a, a boys and men's club?
0: It sounds so eerily similar to the to the ISIS mo. It is, yeah, and and they
1: they have studied these these fascist movements, and they are basically just like ISIS. You know, taking the twentieth century propaganda styles and stunts and materials. And producing it with a uh, 21st century high production skill set. And it's proven to be effective. I mean, we saw ISIS create, you know, its own state, its own nation state, you know, over the course of just a couple of years. And Patriot Front looks at that type of thing and says, hell, we can do that in the Western world, too.
0: Well, Chris, it's been amazing having you on, albeit alarming. Uh, We'd love to have you back as you dive deeper uh, (laughs) into these cesspits. We end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question. What's the bravest decision you've ever been a part of?
1: Doing what I'm doing now in, like, infiltrating these fascist organizations and, and not just doing it anonymously. Like, there are tons of activists around the country doing this work anonymously under the you know the brand of antifa and anti-fascists um you know i don't consider what i'm doing doing this work you know with my own face and name attached to it particularly brave but a lot of people seem to be pretty frightened at the prospect of of what i'm dealing with so maybe it's starting a company that's dedicated to openly combating fascism
0: Well, Chris, thank you. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Chris for joining me. Learn more about his advocacy for veterans by visiting highgroundvets.org and find him on Twitter at at ChrisGoldsmith85. Next time on Burn the Boats, I'll be joined by Amy McGrath, the Marine Corps fighter pilot who took on Mitch McConnell in a grueling Senate race, and who now has a book out about her lifetime of service to her country. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans' care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.